He is worthy. We got up early to acknowledge that with other believers. There's a great encouragement in being together with those of like precious faith. And I trust you're here to worship him, to meet with him and he with you, and to see the great things he has for us in his word, his promises that are precious that he'll be faithful to keep. Just want to say a word about next Sunday morning. We're going to have a believer's baptism at 11 o'clock, so this 8 a.m. service will combine with the 11 a.m. service next Lord's Day for that special occasion. If you have not been baptized since conversion, I encourage you to ask for more information about that. There's time to help you be ready to give your testimony. There are five persons who will be baptized at this point next Sunday at 11, uh, one of whom is only seven months old in Christ. Another is approximately 13 months old in Christ. So God is moving, saving individuals. So whether you're a brand new Christian or you've been a Christian for many years but not yet baptized, let us help you obey the Lord. It's a, a command and not a suggestion. Also, a new members class, God willing, will start the third Sunday in September. So if you've not officially joined the church, aligned yourself in commitment to this local assembly, we'd love to have you in that class to learn more about what we believe, our philosophy of ministry, and how you might fit in and serve Christ with us, the incredible body of Christ. We'd love to see you in that class the third Sunday in September. You know, two of the songs we sang together to the Lord talked about laying aside worries, laying aside cares, and uh, trusting him for that peace. And uh, let's look to him to do just that now. Heavenly Father, you know exactly what each baggage is in the room today, what we've wheeled in behind us, as it were, invisibly, cares and concerns that are on our minds and hearts, maybe that bill to pay or that child to pray back into the fold, maybe employment or danger, whatever the case is, Lord, we cast our care upon you now, and we thank you that you are not overburdened, you don't give us voicemail, we thank you that we have your ear inclined to our needs, we thank you for your great faithfulness and your omnipotence, that all the power there is to have is yours, and nothing is more powerful than you, not Satan, not this world system, not our, our own flesh even. Thank you, Lord, for your greatness. Thank you for your goodness. And as we look into this last chapter of the book of Romans, may we be greatly encouraged by the importance you place on individuals, people, persons, and collections of persons we call people. Lord, speak to our hearts. Speak to the man in the pulpit and speak to my friends in the pews. We have you on our minds and you have our undivided attention. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. You know, people are an amazing thing. Uh, someone has said you don't have to be a cannibal to get fed up with people. Another person contends that humanity I love, but it's people that I have a difficult time with. Let's face it, that people can be difficult and can be demanding, but on the other side of that coin, people are entirely necessary. They're important to our development as Christians, and we need and should appreciate each other. I really pity the person who can't see the upside of people. I pity the person who can't see the blessing that people are in his or her life. 
One way that Beth and I in the past have sought to see the upside of persons that God has put into our lives is that as we were exiting Dallas Seminary, both graduating in the same year with our degrees from Dallas Seminary, we hired an artist. And the artist did a calligraphy of all the names of the key persons that we saw God used to help us through seminary. And those calligraphy names were in the shape of the state of Texas. And every time we look at this piece of art in a prominent place in our home, we're reminded of all the hundreds of names, uh, maybe not hundreds, but a hundred names maybe, of individuals that God put into our lives for a specific purpose, to pray us through seminary, to give us money to help us pay for seminary. We both graduated from Dallas Seminary debt-free, which was all to the glory of God. But he used people, and this piece of art is in our home to remind us of that fact, of how precious people are in our lives, that we need people and that people need us. And as we come to Romans chapter uh, 16, our last chapter in the book, I invite you to turn there, please, Romans chapter 16. As we come to this chapter, we are going to see that Paul had a high view of people. He recognized their uh, benefits in his life and their uh, edification to his spiritual walk. And um, we're going to see that in this last chapter, three Ps. We're going to see Paul's pals, Paul's prognosis, and Paul's prayer. Pals, prognosis, and prayer. And in this last chapter of the book, um, reminds me maybe of the time in my life when I wandered around my high school after my last year, finished my last year graduating high school. And in that last few days of high school, I wandered around the campus with my yearbook. And I went to teachers that I appreciated, asked them to sign my yearbook. I went to other students that had helped me, and they were my friends, and I asked them to sign my yearbook. And maybe you can relate to that. But chapter 16 of Romans is like that kind of an endeavor. Paul is recognizing persons in the church at Rome, although he's never visited, but he knew a lot of them. And he's acknowledging them by name in this particular chapter. And as I said, we're going to look at Paul's pals. That's in verses 1 to 16 and then verses 21 to 23. Then we're going to see his prognosis. And then we're going to see his prayer. So let's get after it with his pals. There are 37 persons named in this one chapter by the Apostle Paul. The vast majority of these persons were born-again believers, but a few lost persons are also in the list. There are converted Jews in the list, but there are also converted Gentiles. There are converted Gentiles from all races and all ethnicities. And this makes total sense, does it not? Because chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans talked about the scope of God's tremendous salvation being available to all who would believe. 116, chapter 116, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. So there are converted Jews and Gentiles in this list. Of the 37 names, 10 are women, which is significant. Because in the New Testament times, women were not always given the same acknowledgement as men were. But 10 of the 37 names that Paul cites are women. The list of names spans a full range of societal status. Slaves are mentioned. 
Former slaves are mentioned, free men are mentioned, one soldier is mentioned, one businessman, a scribe, a city treasurer, a secretary for the emperor Claudius, and even a member of the imperial household, he is named in this list. Clearly, Paul knew all kinds of people, and so do you, and so do I. I hope we know all kinds of people from every strata of society. I hope we love them equally. I hope we respect them, and I hope we want them to know Christ. And when you look at it geographically, Paul also came, his pals also came from many different places. In the list, we have dwellers of Rome, of course, of Centria, of Corinth, of Ephesus, Persia, Cyrene, Derby, Thessalonica, and Berea. People from all these different places are named in the 37 names that Paul had as pals in this chapter. When you read through the first 27 verses of the chapter, you get the sense, one, that Paul loved people, two, that people loved Paul, three, that people, Paul needed people, four, that people needed Paul, five, that Paul remembered the people he met, and six, the people who met Paul remembered him. Seven, Paul appreciated people, eight, Paul encouraged people, nine, Paul was most always surrounded by people, gospel teammates or gospel targets. You know the ministry is people. The ministry is people. Your ministry is people. My ministry is people. This assembly's ministry is people. We like brick and mortar and wood and beautiful sanctuaries and parking, but the ministry is none of that. The ministry is people, people for whom Christ has died. And so that leads us to the 10th point about these pals, that people matter. People matter a great deal to God. There, was a, there has been a very warm and loving chaplain at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's been there for over 20 years. Bill Bryan is his name. And if you go into Bill Bryan's office at Dallas Seminary as a chaplain, he's got something on the wall that I just love. It's a great reminder. It's a sign that said, Christ died for people, not paper. Christ died for people, not paper. And so Chaplain Bill has time for students, time for their spouses, time for their children, time for the community. And we all have ministries that we need to recognize that people matter. The ministry is people. Now, I'm going to read through the first 16 verses and then 21 to 23, and we're seeing Paul mention 37 pals in these verses. Romans 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Chantria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself also has been a helper of many and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epaphronitus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you, Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. 
Greet Amphilatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles and the, uh, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who is in the Lord. Greet Tryphenia and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Paris, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Astrachus and Phlygon and Hermes and Patrobus and Hermas and the brethren with them. Greet Philogigus and Julia, Nurus and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And then skipping down to verse 21 through 23. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. That is, he was his scribe. Tertius was his secretary. Tertius wrote the actual words that Paul dictated to him from the Holy Spirit. That's how Paul uh, was used, used to write the New Testament books, through a secretary. But inspired, Paul was inspired of God, prompted by the Holy Spirit, and told the secretary exactly what to write. And there was no variance or, or change from what Paul, under inspiration, told the secretary to write down. 23, Gaius. Host to me and to the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Quartus, the brother. 37 names. Let me just stop in a moment to fill in some of the details of these 37 persons that we know. We don't know a lot about every one of them. We know something about some of them. But before I get into these details that are going to point out to you this morning that the people in your lives matter to God. And the people in your life should matter to you. I want to say one thing. The only thing that you and I will be able to take with us to heaven are persons we have a part in leading to Christ. There are no bumper hitches on funeral coaches. I've driven many from my father. There's not a bumper hitch on a funeral hearse. The only thing that you and I can take with us to heaven are persons that the Holy Spirit used us to help get into Christ and salvation in the gospel. So people matter. In verses 1 and 2, Phoebe is mentioned as a servant. Uh, the Greek word here is one we use sometimes for deacons, but I think more generally what's being in view here, she was a servant, a plain, useful, helpful servant, a helper to many people at the church at Centria including the Apostle Paul, was helped. She helped him by delivering this very inspired letter to the Church of Rome. That's how they got the letter, was through Phoebe carrying it. In verses 3 and 4, there's a husband and wife team who are mentioned. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. This husband and wife team were in the tent-making business. And at least three times... Uh, they assisted Paul in his missionary work. They sacrificed the proceeds of making tents to fund his missionary journeys to plant churches around the Mediterranean basin. They were loyal to Paul, sacrificially funded his ministry. The first part of verse 5 talks about Apeneitus, and he had a church meeting in his home there at Rome when it was written. 
He was especially clear and precious to Paul because he was the first convert from Asia. Can you imagine? You're given the mantle, the responsibility, the the deployment orders from Christ to take the gospel to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Who is your first convert? Whoever that is is going to be especially precious to you, and it was this man. In verses 6 to 8, Amplifitus was a prominent slave in Rome. Verse 9, it's believed that Stachychus was a Gentile from within the imperial household. Remember, we're going through this with the difficult to pronounce names to say people matter. People matter. Verse 10, Aristopolis was a Greek, excuse me, a Jewish unbeliever. He's an unbeliever, but he's in this list. And most likely, he was the brother of Herod Agrippa I and the grandson of Herod the Great. But even in his household, there were found believers in Jesus, and Paul knew them. That brings me to the point that God has his people everywhere. On this island, on the family islands, God has his blood-bought children everywhere on fishing boats, in convenience stores, in political parties. God has his people everywhere. Where does God have you? What does he have you to do there? In verse 11, uh, Paul refers to a person who was his kinsman. That is, that Herodian was Jewish too. Going through these names... (laughs) brothers and sisters, reminds me that because God has his people everywhere and people matter, and because you will be places this week that I will not be, you will be rubbing shoulders with people I will not be rubbing shoulders with, you will be speaking to people that I may never meet. We have all a job to do. We're all ministers. I'm not the only minister here this morning. You all are ministers if you're saved. To take the good news of Christ to people who need it, wherever you go. Paul's pals going on. Uh, More Christians are cited in verse 11. Uh, Likely the emperor's secretary, Claudius, is also mentioned. We know from history that Nero executed him when he took over as being emperor. Verse 12. Greet Tryphenia and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord, These two ladies were twin sisters, and they were slaves in Emperor Claudius' court. Christians come in all different walks of life. The sweet aroma of redemption was wafting into all the corners of the first century. That's how God does things. In verse 13, Rufus is mentioned. He was the son of Simon of Cyrene. Remember him? He was the very person who was constricted to carry the Lord Jesus' cross when Jesus could no longer physically carry it. Amazing. The son of the man who carried Christ's cross to Golgotha is mentioned in this list, and he is a believer. People matter to God. In verse 21, Timothy is mentioned. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Timothy was half Jewish and half Gentile. 
He's the church in miniature. He's the personification of that church made up of both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Timothy was half Jewish and half Gentile. Lucius was from Cyrene. Jason was from Thessalonica. And Sosipater was from Berea, where they searched the scriptures to see if the apostles' teaching was in accordance with the scriptures or not. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, even early after Jesus Christ's ascension back to the Father's right hand, was permeating, was penetrating all parts, regions, persons, social strata. It was a revolution, a spiritual revolution. I mentioned in verse 22 that Tertius was Apostle Paul's scribe and stenographer. God moved Paul. Paul dictated to Tertius. Tertius wrote it down verbatim. Phoebe couriered it to Rome. The Christian Christians there at Rome read it to each other, and we read it this morning together in this year of our Lord, 2016. People matter. God used people to write the scripture. God used a person to deliver the scripture to the original readers. God used people to preserve the transmission of this scripture through all the centuries, although monarchs and kings and queens killed and churches killed those who stood on the transmission of God's word. But God has safely seen to it that we have the 66 books of the Bible, all 66, accurately translated. God uses people. Christ died for people, not for paper. The only thing that we'll be able to take to heaven with us are persons we've led to Christ. And so how are you seeing people these days? How are you seeing your boss? How are you seeing your client? How are you seeing your children? How are you seeing your friends? How are you seeing your brothers and sisters in Christ in this and other churches? How are you seeing people? Are you seeing them as God wants you to see them, with care and love? Are you seeing them as being precious? Are you seeing them patiently? Are you seeing them with enjoyment? Are you seeking to learn from each one of them? Are you wanting to encourage them, and are you willing to accept encouragement from them? This is called Say It Now. An unknown author has penned these thought-provoking words, I would rather have one little rose from the garden of a friend than to have the choicest flowers when my stay on earth must end. I would rather have a pleasant word in kindness said to me than flattery when my heart is still and life has ceased to be. I would rather have a loving smile from friends I know are true than tears shed round my casket when this, to this world I bid adieu. Bring me all your flowers today, whether pink or white or red. I'd rather have one blossom now than a truckload when I'm dead. Now's the day. We may not have tomorrow. Love somebody today. Pick up the phone today. Send an email today. Love someone today. Encourage someone today. We may not have tomorrow. Now, it's clear to me that Paul didn't see any one of these 37 persons he named as being his competitor Instead, he saw each of these brothers and sisters in Christ as being a blessing to enjoy. Check out the terms he used for some of these. Our sister in verse 1, fellow workers in verse 3, dear friend in verse 5, my relatives in verse 7, whom I love, verse 8, a mother to me too, verse 13, the brothers, verse 14, the saints, verse 15. Competition, friends, may be appropriate in athletics, 
and economics and politics, but competition is not to be in the Christian life with other believers. Competition is not to be in our spiritual lives. Paul was a companion to these 37 persons. He was not a competitor against them. The Daily Bread writer puts it well. It was the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre who had nothing but disdain for the concept of companionship. He saw all people as competitors, each bent on making a mere object of others. According to this view, the people are always striving with one another in a kind of a continual rivalry. End of quote. Yuck. That isn't how God sees people, and that is not how we should see people. Instead, people can be our pals. People can be our companions. People can be created with us in God's image, and therefore they can matter. People have souls that outlast their bodies and live forever in one of two places, determined by what they do or don't do with Christ while alive on earth or no second chances after death. From pals, we move to prognosis. When the doctor sees you and examines you and does some tests, he might give you a prognosis. Medically speaking, what can you anticipate? What is likely, given what the doctor has found from examining and testing you? What's the prognosis? Paul had four prognoses, four things that he fully expected. And we see them in verses 17 to 20. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Aren't you glad for that? And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So what are these four prognoses? What are these four things that Paul in the Spirit of God said that we could anticipate? The first readers of the book of Romans could anticipate, and we still can anticipate these four things. Are you ready? Prognosis number one, false teachers are a given. False teachers are a given. Now, I, Verse 70, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause divisions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. False teachers are a given. There are three chapters in the New Testament specifically given to us to warn us of false teachers and to tell us what to do when we encounter one. Those chapters are 2 Peter chapter 2, 2 John verses 11, 7 to 11, 2 John 7 to 11, and Jude, a one-chapter book. False teachers were a given back then, and false teachers are still a given this morning. And we are to keep your eye on them. 
False teachers are a given. That's prognosis number one. Prognosis number two is greater obedience requires greater discernment. If you want to obey Christ more, you're going to have to discern truth from error better. You're going to have to discern the excellent from the good and the bad. If you're going to follow and obey Jesus Christ as your Lord and Master, you are going to need great discernment beyond yourself. You're going to need Holy Spirit, Scripture-based discernment. Satan doesn't create anything. Only God has the power to create anything. Satan counterfeits what God has created. God has created marriage. Satan counterfeits it as being throwaway and something you can be, have a lack of marital fidelity in. That isn't from God. God creates marriage. Satan counterfeits it. Satan is not a creator. He is a counterfeiter. And because Satan is a lying, deceptive, accusing, murderous counterfeiter, then greater obedience to the king is going to require great discernment through the Holy Spirit living through us, controlling us, opening our understanding of God's word and giving us convictions, not opinions, convictions based on scripture. And so the second prognosis here is greater obedience requires greater discernment. 19, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. Isn't that a good thing? Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. 1 Peter 5, 8, we're told, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Make no mistake about it. Satan is cunning. And the more you want to be in the good and innocent of the bad will require discernment that you won't just look at the cover of the book. You'll look at the whole root issue that he's tempting you with. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. You know, it's the believer who says, I'd never do that sin. Looks at someone else and says, I would never do that. That's the Christian who is the most close to the edge to falling out of fellowship with God. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That's 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Greater obedience requires greater discernment. The third prognosis of four Satan is defeated. Aren't you glad? Satan is defeated. And the church will be God's tool to evidence the fact that Satan is defeated. That's the third prognosis. Satan is defeated, and the church will be God's tool to evidence that fact. Look at the first part of verse 20. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Isn't it interesting that God will crush Satan under our feet? 
That is under the feet of the church of Jesus Christ. That is the feet of the blood-bought, peculiar people of God, the church, universal, of which this assembly is but one localized expression. Isn't it interesting that God will soon crush Satan under our feet, the church? The Greek behind the English soon and the God of peace, 20, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The Greek for the word soon means speedily. It means quickly, not surprisingly. So we're not hanging on for dear life here. We're not, we are instead poised for God to deploy at his time and for his glory we're just not eking out a spiritual existence, I hope. We're understanding in our prayer lives, we're understanding in our facing of temptation, we're understanding that Satan is defeated. When Jesus Christ said, it is finished, he defeated Satan. He defeated sin, he defeated death, and the empty tomb in Jerusalem that I've been inside is proof that that's the case. Jesus is not dead, he is alive. Satan is defeated, and the church will be God's tool to evidence that fact. The fourth of four prognoses is this. Grace is our constant asset. The greatest thing on your balance sheet is not the funds you have deposited in the Scotiabank. The greatest thing on your personal balance sheet is grace. Grace is the greatest asset. We have grace, 20B. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. <laughs> the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Philip Yancey, in his most challenging book, What's So Amazing About Grace, recalls a British conference on comparative religions, which was convened decades ago. Experts from all around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. Incarnation. Other religions had various gods, little g's, claiming to appear in human form. By the way, I said, God blessed someone this past week on vacation. I said, God bless you. And you know what she said to me? Which one? I'm sure one of them will. This is the climate we live in. This was in the Bahamas. God bless you. Which one? I'm sure that one of them will. So at this conference in Great Britain years back, and experts from around the world, from other world religions, including Christianity, were trying to sort out what's unique about the Christian faith. It wasn't incarnation. Other, going back, other religions had various gods claiming to appear in human form. Was it resurrection? Again, other religions claimed accounts of return from the dead. As the debate continued, C.S. Lewis wandered into the room and asked what was going on. And when C.S. Lewis learned that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's uniqueness, C.S. Lewis said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. <laughs> that's what's unique about Christianity, grace, unmerited favor. And if we are recipients of God's grace in the gospel, if we are recipients of God's grace in salvation, we must be dispersal vessels of grace to other people. 
And it's grace, the grace of God that sets biblical Christianity apart from all other religions, grace that centers in the argument of this great book of Romans for imputed righteousness and justification and progressive sanctification and ultimate glorification are all built upon the foundation of God's grace. Were it not for grace, we'd have none of those things. If God were to deal with us as we all deserve to be dealt with, we'd be toast. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It is our privilege and responsibility to consciously, consistently dwell on this tremendous commodity called grace. So far in the chapter, we've seen Paul's pals. We've seen Paul's four prognoses in closing What remains to see is Paul's prayer, verses 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. Very quickly, we're going to see five truths in this prayer. Very quickly. The first truth here is that God is able to establish Christians. God is able to establish you as a Christian. Truth two, the two means that God uses to establish Christians are the gospel and Christ-centered preaching. Truth three, this establishment project is confirmed by the scriptures. Truth four, this establishment project has an objective no smaller than global belief in Christ and obedience around the globe to Jesus. And truth five, all the glory for all of time goes to God the Father through God the Son. Let me quickly unpack these five truths really quickly. Truth one again is that God is able to establish Christians. See in the first part of verse 25, now to him who is able to establish you. You struggle in your Christian walk, so do I. Take heart this morning that God is able to establish you. Second truth. The two means that God uses to establish Christians are the gospel and Christ-centered preaching. Verse 25, second part. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. There it is. According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The two ways that God is going to establish you are through the gospel and through Christ-centered preaching. Every preacher and Bible teacher should be able and involved in opening any Bible passage, Old or the New Testament, and preaching and teaching Christ. The Old Testament is Christ concealed. The New Testament is Christ revealed. The Bible is centered in Jesus Christ. It never wanders far from Jesus Christ. 
We want to have a ministry in the 8 a.m. service that is centered in Christ because it's centered in the word of Christ. The third truth, this establishment of Christians is confirmed by the scriptures. See it there, the latter part of verse 25 and into 26. According to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. The scriptures are what God is going to use to confirm your establishment as a believer. The only thing, listen to me, the only thing that limits God is his word. He has chosen to limit himself to be consistent with his word. When someone comes to me and tells me they had some outlandish experience that's contrary to what the Bible says, I say say it's not from God. God limits himself to his revealed word. It's all we need for life and godliness. He's not held anything back from us in his word that we need right now. There's more we'd like to know about heaven. There's more we'd like to know about many things. But what we need to know, God graciously has given us in his word, the scriptures. So the establishment of you in your Christian faith is confirmed by the scriptures. What God says, God does, always, without fail. He is the ultimate promise keeper. He is the unchanging God who wrote an unchanging word to changing people like us. Now, some people accuse me in this statement of being putting God in a box. God has put himself in a box for his own good purposes relative to his word. Because if he's, if he's got revelation that we, he wants us to know and to believe in that's outside of his word, where do we stop? And where does it come from? Within? Without? That's how you get a cult. When you take something from beyond the scriptures, the Book of Mormon, for instance, the slaughtered translation of the New Testament by the Jehovah's Witness Watchtower Press. That's how you get a cult. God has put himself for his own good purposes in the box of scripture. We need to live inside this box. Truth four, this establishment project has an objective no smaller than global belief and global obedience to Christ. This is not a rinky-dink endeavor. This is not a wing and a prayer. This is not a Band-Aid, patched together, tiny little concept. The establishment project that God has for all of his believers in Jesus Christ worldwide is none other, nothing smaller, but big as global belief on Christ and and global obedience to Christ. Verse 26a, has been made known to all, all the nations. 
And because it's not yet known to all the ethnicities, the people groups of the globe, that's why we do world missions. That's why we kiss our sons and our daughters on their cheek when God calls them to take the gospel to a person that have never heard it before in a far corner of the earth and we don't say stick around for family functions. With God, of course, all means all. 26. Has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. The fifth truth, to restate it, is that all the glory for all of time goes to God the Father via God the Son. Verse 27, last verse of this great book. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Amen means let it be so. And so we come to the end of a fantastic epistle. If I only had one book of the 66 books, for some reason, I was stranded on a desert island, I would take Romans. What book would you take? I would take Romans. And I want to close the message and the teaching through the book of Romans with you with four quotes about the book of Romans. Coleridge said, it, Romans, is the profoundest work in existence. Martin Luther, reformer, remarked that Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel. Calvin said, if a man understands the book of Romans, he has a sure road open for him to the understanding of the whole scripture. Godet referred to the book of Romans as the cathedral of Christian faith. And the language scholar Bruce Metzger has called Romans the constitution of universal Christianity. We thank God for who he is and what he's done, and we thank God for the book of Romans. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us through this book. We thank you for what you've taught us and what you're teaching us. May you get all of the glory through our Savior, who is your Son, and we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen.